Hey everyone, welcome back to Taking Apologetics. Super pumped you are joining us today to have Andrew Horanich. Um, we're talking about God and heaven and hell and universalism and all kinds of fun stuff. So Andrew, what's up, man? How you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited for this conversation. I've been doing a lot more um, stuff on like talking about like the doctrine of hell and like heaven and things like this, um, talking with Christians and atheists about it. So yeah, I'm super pumped and I'm excited to see where we go with this conversation. So yeah, I'm excited. So we're gonna be talking about hell and heaven and primarily um, something along the lines of universalism today. Um, and Andrew has a form of universalism, universalism, if I have it right. And we're just going to kind of break that down and try to understand what's going on. So Andrew, just to get things started, do you want to talk a little bit about like who you are, what you do, and what get you interested in topics like what we're talking about today? Sure. Um, so just this past year, I graduated from Liberty University with uh, a bachelor's in religious studies and four minors attached. And now I am studying at Princeton Theological Seminary for the next two years so I can get my master's in Christian education before I move on to preferably Oxford, um, the Lord, if the Lord is willing, of course. Uh, eventually, I want to wind up in New Testament scholarship. I want to publish some more works of my own. I do have a forthcoming book, uh, Once Loved, Always Loved. That's being endorsed by philosophers, philologists, and scholars around the world. So I'm looking forward to that release. I'm also a part-time apologist with Truth for a New Generation with Alex McFarlane. Uh, and I am a man of many hats outside of the fields of theology and philosophy as far as being a brother uh, to six other siblings, I might add. And uh, working many jobs at the same time. So that's a little bit about me. Yeah, right on, man. And besides for Carl, I think you're the first person on the podcast after like 200 some episodes that I actually know personally. Um, so I think that's super cool. Uh, we both graduated from LU in the spring. And yeah, I mean, so obviously I've seen a little bit of your journey basically just by following you on Instagram and just seeing your reading. Like you read, how much do you read? I'm just wondering, because it seems like you read a lot. Um, a book a day. Stuff. That's the goal. A book a day keeps okay. the devil away. Oh my gosh, you're crazy, man. I'm trying to read it. I'm trying to read a hundred books by the end of 2022. It's a struggle. And I can do that we'll in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, so let's talk about um the big topic today is universalism. So just to start yeah. things off, Andrew, do you want to talk like broadly speaking, what is your view? Because obviously, like when you say like sure. you're a universalist, that can carry a lot of baggage, and people may say, Oh, you believe this, but then you'd be like, No, 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 I, I actually don't believe that. Um, mm -hmm. so broadly speaking, just to like to lay it out from like 10,000 feet, what is your view exactly, Andrew? So I like how Karl Barth said it. Karl Barth said, I don't believe in universalism. I believe in Jesus Christ, the reconciler of all. Now, you might want to say that Karl Barth wants to have his cake and eat it too. But the point is that Karl Barth was trying to place the emphasis for reconciliation on Jesus. And I think that's very important because oftentimes when someone hears the word universalist or universalism, they often think of pluralism, right? That all roads lead to heaven. And I certainly don't believe that. I'm not a pluralist. I'm not even essentially an inclusivist, which traditionalists often are in many cases. Uh, one can be an exclusivist, one can be an inclusivist and still believe what I believe. So I hold the form of purgatorial universalism, which states that uh, there is indeed a hell. There are some universalists who do not believe that there is a hell. This would be an empty view of hell, that the threats of hell are essentially just that. They're just threats meant to keep people in line. Uh, there are others who believe that people after death are tra instantaneously transformed and imbued with virtues. I don't believe any of those. Um, I am one with Gregory of Nyssa and Origen of Alexandria and Clement, and I believe that after death, the damned will go through a period of purification in which they will be educated and punished for their past deeds, and then ultimately they will be restored to God. A view I should also add that St. Paul had. Hmm. 
Okay, this is super great. And I'm super excited because like for me personally, um, I'm sure viewers that like have listened a long time know like kind of where I'm at with this. I'm kind of at a crossroads where like I lean towards something like annihilationism, um, but I'm obviously like a hopeful universalist. And I mean, eternal conscious torment's really hard for me to get my mind around. I think you could defend something like Lewis's view, um, but that's just how I put my cards on the table. So let's start with this, Andrew. What got you interested in this topic and thinking about like what, what moves you towards um, – like this kind of view? Because if, if I'm thinking about the Andrew I knew three years ago, I don't think he'd say what you just said. Um, so what, what got you interested and in started thinking about this topic? Sure, yeah, it's a bit of irony, isn't it? Several years back, the mm -hmm. first sermon I ever gave was on the topic of hell. And then I was on a podcast not long after, and again, I was issuing, uh, talking about the issue of hell. But what became clear to me in the months after when I started reading more on the subject was that I knew absolutely nothing about it in the first place. I was merely participating in the game of telephone. It reminds me of the story of uh, Preston Sprinkle, who wrote the book Erasing Hell with Francis Chan. And Sprinkle confesses after the publication of the book that he really didn't know much about the topic until he started researching for it. And so that's the same with me. It was when I was writing a book with another apologist. It was, um, I think it was called The Gods of Christianity. And uh, we were confronting universalism in particular. And so I started to read universalist literature, and I was surprised. <laughs> I had never seen exegesis like they had offered before. I was not aware of all the complex arguments. And it, it took me aback. Now, it took me a while before I was convinced because I was very familiar with the arguments that traditionalists and annihilationists offer. And it took a long while, but eventually I was convinced over. And uh, I have to say that it was not by one theologian or one philosopher, but it was many of them put together. And so I had to kind of navigate myself through that as I went and as I studied these issues. And um, that's where I'm at. Yeah, right on, man. It's a very complicated topic. Um, I think a lot of times, like people, when you're presented with like any view, especially in Christian theology, that's like something that you just weren't, you don't grow up with. You're kind of like, wait, that's crazy at first. It's yeah. so, like for me growing up as a Christian, like I, I always like when I thought of universalism, or like even annihilationism for a while. I was like, that's crazy. Like, isn't it pretty clear? Like you read like Matthew 25, Revelation 21, and like it's eternal conscious torment. Like that's it. Yeah. And obviously I'm not, I'm not saying like it's crazy to believe either of those things, but like it is a very complex topic and we have to think about it. Um, so if we're going to flesh out your view, Andrew, we're thinking about like eschatology. What exactly is going on here? Like what exactly, if we're going to flesh out your view, what's happening? Like um, you talked about you, like you believe in heaven and hell. Um, but all people will be like, in some sense, like, well, not in some sense, but all people will be reconciled to God. Just flesh out a little bit more for people listening. What exactly is your view? Sure. And uh, I want to address a concern that I know might come up is that some might object that universalism, um, as I'm presenting, is a later belief that came maybe perhaps in the 1800s or 1900s. And then just simply false. I mean, some of the earliest Christians were universal. In fact, of the six theological schools, uh, four of them were universalists. One was conditionalist, and one was uh, traditionalist school. You're talking about uh, early Augustine, church history here, right? With the with the first early six church schools? history uh, prior mm -hmm. to Augustine. Now, Augustine himself, in the City of God and other works, acknowledges that those um, who did not believe the fires of hell were eternal were the vast majority. Now he calls them the hoi polloi, right? It's a little bit of a demeaning term, but he acknowledges <laughs> that this is the majority belief. And Saint Basil the Great also acknowledges this, although in the East. Uh, St. Basil is probably not familiar with much of Western Christianity, and I don't blame him for that. But St. Basil um, says that it was the predominant view in his time that the fires of hell were purifying in nature. And so this view is ancient. This view is old. Um, Richard Balcom once wrote a horrible article, by the way, uh, attempting to say that universalists are infiltrating the Christian ranks and that the creeds condemn it. And I just have to ask him. He later retracted this. Which creeds might those be? 
because the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, they simply don't mention that. Now, he might say the Athanasian Creed, but the Athanasian Creed was not written by St. Athanasius. Most scholars acknowledge that was written centuries later, and there are many difficulties that come with that. So of the main Christian doctrines, none of them, in fact, uh, address the nature of hell as whether it's um, it comports with an annihilationist view or traditionalist view or restorationist view. What is interesting is this, is that I believe it's the Nicene, it's the Nicene or Chalcedonian Creed in particular, uh, was handcrafted by universalists. It was one of the councils were presided over by a universalist. Gregory of Nyssa himself um, added the phrase, the life of the age to come in one of the creeds. And so universalists were very much active in these early centuries of the Christian church. In fact, I'll go so far to say that without origin, without the great father origin in the early years of the Christian church, the Christian tradition as it is today might not be the same. It's, I like to use this analogy. Origin is like one who invented the game of rugby. And after inventing it, he was castrated and not allowed to play it again. <laughs> so uh, the point being that this view is very early and that those who want to say that this is because of modern sensibilities are just flat out wrong and deceiving themselves. Mm. So this is interesting to me because it's something like I just haven't done like the heavy lifting of like actually like, studying yeah. early church history a lot. Um but it is interesting to like if you could like if, if we could show like four out of the six early Christian schools of like yes. theology like were universalist. Um and obviously like, like you could read the creeds and see like I was just looking at the Nicene Creed as you were talking, like there's nothing about um like either contra or for universalism in there. Um like th that's interesting. Like that's it's just yeah. something that like yeah. you don't really think about because you think about like my culture is like in most of Christian culture, like the world right now would lean to like just a tradition of like eternal conscious torment. And to say like that tradition goes against like the early like church history, like if that's true, like that's really interesting. And that's something that you have to really think about and chew on. And, and what's more to that is this. Now, some might say if if that statistic that I just told you was told in universalist literature, it would be written off as, oh, well, that's just universalist. But that statistic actually came from traditionalist literature. Um, it was, The editor was a traditionalist himself who believed that hell was eternal, and yet he did not contramand this statistic. In fact, what, what uh, this is this that you're talking about? Up. I can't recall, but I can send it to you later. I'd have to check my notes on that. Yeah, just but send I do it to me and put it in the show notes. I'll put in the show notes. In fact, um, I do have a book uh, back here somewhere by Ilaria Romelli. It's on the second shelf. And Ilaria Romelli is a wonderful lady, a uh, great classicist. And her work on Apocatastasis Panton is extensive. It's several hundred pages. But she has made uh, more contemporary literature that is accessible for a more general audience. And I would highly recommend it. It's called A Larger Hope. And in there, she goes through each of the uh, many of the fathers who believed in the same view that I hold and that she holds. And I would highly recommend that to anybody who's interested in the early Christian roots of this doctrine. Yeah, man, that's super cool. So let's, let's talk about like a little, maybe like a little bit of like an eschatological story here um and then get into maybe like like why you think your view maybe makes like theological sense and we'll get into philosophical sense and stuff um like we're sketching out like the eschaton and thinking about like um what's going to happen here and like you know we talk about like the idea of, like these key things like um a final judgment and like the separation of like heaven and hell and things like this um things that you'd probably want to affirm in some level like what like if you're drawing an eschatological story from say like right now and August 7th, 2022, when we're talking to like the end of days where everyone is reconciled to God. What does that story kind of look like uh, as we get from point A to B? Sure. Um, so we have to remember that not only is God the Alpha, but he's also the Omega. Now, Christians have often taken this to mean that this means that God is the first being, the last being, which doesn't really make much sense, does it? 
if we Christians are going to exist forever, <laughs> right? Um, mm -hmm. Now, more so in the context of these passages, it is to the point that God is the beginning and the end of all beings. He is their beginning, and he shall be their end. In fact, Ephesians 1, 9 through 10 says that Christ has been set forth to sum up all things in himself. That is the Father's intention, to set forth Christ, to unite all things in Christ. Um, elsewhere, we see in uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 28, that God will be all in all. Now, um, I leave it to the Calvinists to attempt to say that what this passage means, that God will be overall. <laughs> uh, that is not what the passage says. In fact, many um, scholars recognize early on that it could literally translate the Greek as to say that God will be everything to everyone, uh, which is hard to reconcile on a traditionalist or annihilationist view, but we can get into that later. Anyway, these passages are pointing to the idea that Jesus is the end for all creatures. He is the conclusion, not as he just the beginning, but he is the end of all things. But there is a process in which people have to reach to get there. And this Matthew 25, 46 um, sketches this out. It uses the word colossus when it's addressing the type of punishment that is being used. Now, colossus, William Barclay points out, um, usually in Greek literature, in almost every instance, is used of remedial punishment. Remedial. It's actually an ag agricultural term that means to prune. And so why does one prune something? Well, so that it will grow back, right, for the betterment of the tree or the vine. And Jesus is using the same language of the goats. Now, others might attempt to come back and say, well, not every instance of Colossus, right, is remedial. And that is true. But it would fit, the remedial connotation would fit in with Christ, who often uses agricultural terminology, does he not? He often talks about sowers and farmers and such. But beyond that, uh, what I find interesting is that in the early church, there were the catacombs where Christians would go and pray and perform services, right? And in the catacombs were found images of Christ and on his back, a kid. Not a sheep, a kid. And there has been much literature written about this, that the early church recognizes that, the sheep, uh, that not just the sheep can be reconciled to Christ, but the goats can too. And so this was, again, an early Christian belief. And so Matthew 25, 46 actually points us to the intermediate state in the sense of the damned going through this season of being purged, of being purified, of being pruned. And uh, I get into this in a chapter in my book on justice. Uh, I'm sure we'll get into justice later at length. But the biblical view of justice more or less is that of restoration. I mean, this is quite basic. Why does God punish Israel? Uh, what is the end goal in mind? Well, so that they will return to him, so that they will come back to him. Um, God is likened here essentially to a parent. Now, I know many Christians um, who I think verge at times a Christian supremacy. I'm very careful with the terminology, but that is how it comes across. They want to say that all Christians are children of God and the rest are children of the devil. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And that's just blatantly false. I mean, children of God are defined in different senses throughout the scripture. For example, the angels are called sons of God in the Old Testament. Now, I am not a son of God in the sense that an angel is. Jesus is called the monogenes, the one and only son of God, the unique son of God. Now, am I a son of God in the same sense that Christ is? Of course not. The Israelites are called children of God. Well, I'm not a Jew, um, so I'm not a son of God in the same sense that an Israelite said. But furthermore, all people are called children of God repeatedly in Scripture. In Acts 17, when Paul's uh, speaking before the Areopagus, he says this. He says that we are all God's offspring. In the genealogy of Luke, I believe it's Luke chapter 4, I believe, 
it talks about uh, Jesus' genealogy and ties it all the way back to Adam. What I find most interesting is that if you look at the last names connecting back to Adam, it says the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so. It comes to Adam. It says, Adam, the son of God. Now, if Adam is the son of God, I wonder what that makes us. In the story of the prodigal son, furthermore, when did the prodigal stop being a son? Well, he did. And people want to try to get around this and say, well, God's the creator of all, but he's not the father of all. This is an arbitrary distinction, which I get into in my book. But I would like to point out more that the person who really addresses people as children of God the most is Christ himself. Now, Christ says um, to the crowd that he is speaking to, he says, if you who are wicked know how to give good gifts to your son, how much more will your father? And pause. Jesus is saying that God is a father to who? You who are wicked. He's saying God is a father to those who are wicked. Now, why is it that traditionalists and annihilationist Christians might want to downplay this language? It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Because we know that a parent disciplines a child for the for the child's good. Uh, let's take an example that you might have seen on my Instagram. Let's say that a child bullies another child. Um, my goodness will be manifested in the discipline of this child so long as I'm seeking for my child to look towards the good, to be spurned on towards the good, right? And so I might spank my child, per se, in order to spurn my child on towards the good, to see the value in all creatures. If, on the other hand, I was to say, kill my child, well, that's not displaying my goodness, isn't it? <laughs> mm -hmm. So, again, I think it's really important in this conversation that we emphasize how exactly God relates to all persons. Now, I'm not denying that there's this unique, special sense uh, that Christians are related to God. But to deny altogether the sense in which all persons relate to God is just fictitious. Mm. So, this is very helpful. So, fleshing out your view then, Andrew. So, we do have, like— so we have, like very much in scripture, like we talk about um, the idea of like a final judgment of everyone coming to face Jesus um, and things like this in like the, the path of the path of life and the path to hell and da da da. Um, so what exactly is that in your mind? We're looking at the final judgment. Like um, what exactly is going on here in your view? Yeah, it's quite strange, isn't it? I mean, people read the word final judgment and they read into it all sorts of connotations. I mean, it's amazing. It just says that there is a judgment. The question is, what is the nature of that judgment? And we'd have to look to other texts to see what the Bible says is the nature of that judgment. It'd be quite odd, wouldn't it, if God is used to expressing his judgment and his justice in one way in this life, but then it's, it's completely different in the next life. You would expect mm -hmm. that there is divine consistency in God, that he would act in the future the same way that he's acted in the present. In fact, this is essentially how Jesus argues and how uh, for resurrection um, and elsewhere is that in order to make eschatological statements about the future, we can premise them based off of God, about certain characteristics of God in the present. So how we view God in the present should affect how we view God in the future. What's the future? What will happen in the future? How we view the alpha should affect how we view the omega. And this is very important when it comes to the judgment. So if God, if God, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament times, in the present times, is seeking to restore, right? His judgments are meant to restore. Well, I would expect the final judgment to epitomize that. I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. So Paul says, uh, there's an incestuous man in, uh, in his letter to the Corinthians, and Paul says to deliver this man to Satan. Now, at which point most Christians close their Bible and they flail in the air and say, hallelujah, praise God. Well, no. He says, for the destruction of the flesh. 
so that his spirit might be saved on the day of the Lord. This is really helpful. The reason why this man is to be punished in a reverse baptism is so that he might be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, Paul says this elsewhere. He says that there are those who have blasphemed God in his letter to Timothy. They're blasphemers of God, but that he has delivered these individuals to Satan so that they might learn not to blaspheme. That they may not learn. Uh, over and over and over again, we have these passages about why God punishes individuals, and it's so that they might be restored to him. Romans 11.32 says, For God has consigned all to disobedience, so that he may have mercy on all. And we understand for Paul in Romans 11 that God's severity is a form of his kindness. It's the opposite side of the coin. His severity is meant to spur us on towards the good. And we may lose sight of that at times. And I can understand that we might not understand how God's severity and kindness fit in together. But we have to trust in that tension. We have to trust God. We have to trust his word. And we know that eventually God will be all in all. So yes, I think that we need, uh, essentially with the final judgment, we need to make sure that we're maintaining consistency with how God acts at the present. And that should affect our view of how he will act in the future. Okay. So pushing your view further than Andrew, we have this idea of um, some sort of like, like, would you say that like there's a, there is like some sort of judgment where like um, in the future where like some people are going to go to heaven and some people are going to go to hell. Like, would you agree with that claim? Yeah, so there's many different views there uh, between not just universalists, but traditionalists, whether, uh, I mean, traditionalists like Jerry Walls even seem to stumble on whether the damned will even know that they're in hell. I mean, whether they will even know that there's God. Um, now, I find this troubling. I, I think the New Testament is very clear that eventually all persons uh, prior to even the ultimate reconciliation will realize that there is indeed a God. Now, I think this is very clear in Matthew 25, for example. So I think they'll be very uh, well aware of God's existence, and I believe that they will be tormented in hell. Now, they're not going to be tortured. They're going to be tormented. There is a difference. The difference is that God is not forcing extrinsic punishments onto people. Rather, he is allowing them to experience the internal consequences of their choice, of the disposition of their soul. Um, so in this life, we don't experience the full consequences for our sins. We simply don't. Uh, thanks to the common grace of God, he has shielded us from that. But God can remove his hands, so to speak, so that we are allowed to experience the true and full consequences of our choices. And that is the view that um, George MacDonald, Thomas Talbot, Eric Reiton, and I hold, is that when people understand how horrid it is to live opposed to God, that they will return to him, that they will rush into his arms. And we can get further into that, but uh, that's mm -hmm. just something to think about. Yeah, well, I mean, I definitely think there's something to that that's true. Like, there's been times in my own life where stuff's happening or whatever, and I'm just like, oh, shoot, like, I'm really messed up. Like, Zach, like, Zach Sackler really has, has very little figured out, if anything, um, and I, like, I really need God. So I think there's something really to that. Um, so looking at your view further than Andrew, so we have this idea, like, like there is a hell, um, and like people are going to suffer based off like the inclinations of their soul, which I think is a great way of thinking about, like if, even if I was going to defend like eternal conscious torment, I'd say a version of hell, something like that is true. Um, but then that's eternal is like something I would do if I was going to defend that model, which I think there's issues with, but that's where I'd have to go. Um, but so eventually then in this, in your model, people, will they come to realize like, Oh, sh like this is, this isn't going well, just being by myself. Um, so I'm going to turn to God or is it more of like God, like miraculously intervening to get them out of this state? Like what's going on here where we get people 
um, that are in hell that eventually are going to end up in heaven? Like, how does that happen in your model? So, yeah, uh, there's many different views. Uh, one of them that I find quite appealing is uh, an education view where it's the earthly, it's the earthly review, uh, which is essentially that someone, let's take Hitler, for example, since he often comes up in these conversations. Um, Hitler may have to view his life, his earthly life, from the perspective of his victims. <laughs> this is quite powerful. I mean, we see uh, many movies written on this, and we understand how they appeal to us. But it might actually be a practicality in real life that Hitler may have to experience this. And in experiencing it, he may come to understand the true depravity of his actions. Now, some might object, well, Hitler can continue on sitting. I mean, this is this is a ridiculous argument that C.S. Lewis puts forward, Richard Swinburne. I, I never found it convincing that people can continue to sin forever. Now, not all traditionalists even acknowledge this. I mean, Sean Bowalski, I think, effectively demolishes this argument. First of all, it has no scriptural support at all. There is no scripture that one will find that one will have the ability to continue sinning on forever. And, and, and there's even debate whether John Calvin or Augustine held that view or many of the reformers and the people in the early church. I, th I think it's ridiculous. Um, but let's examine it further, why I think it's ridiculous. So one of the things it seems to suggest is that at some point in time, you and I can concretely form our character so that our character just simply cannot change. Now, that sounds to me a lot like divine impassibility, which is very debated these days. But it's one thing to say that God is impassable and a completely different thing to say that the creature is impassable. I mean, we all experientially know of individuals who they seem to have their character formed in one way. And then it was by the grace of God, by something, it was altered. It was changed. So I don't think that people have to have immobility of character. I think they must have stability of character. An example I like to use is that of Ebenezer Scrooge in The Christmas Carol. Now, if you're familiar with the story, Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, he turned down offers to give money to the poor. He wouldn't give Bob Cratchit that day off and so on and so on. And in the span of one night, he's visited by the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And everything changes. He went from being a cruel, warped, selfish old man to being one of the best people in that entire town. A re very respectable man. Now I wonder, is the infinite God more resourceful than the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future? And does he have more time at his disposal? The infinite God is on the case. He will know exactly when to push and when not to push. What to say, what not to say, when to say it, and when not to say it. I believe I have more faith in the infinite God than I do the ghost of Christmas past, present, and future. And so that's just one example. People might say, well, that's a literary example. Okay, I'll give you the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was breathing out murder towards the Christians. He was very opposed to them. He calls himself the chief of sinners. And yet he was changed. God softened his heart. He altered his disposition of his heart. Is anything too hard for the Lord to do? Is his arm too short that he cannot accomplish this? Uh, and I understand where certain individuals are opposed to formulations of determinism, right? And the relationship of grace and the will. But I think that if we examine uh, the relation of libertarian free will to compatibilism, we might find that we're not too far off at times. And uh, I find Thomas Talbot and Eric Reiton uh, very enlightening in this regard. And so... Ultimately, I don't believe that it is possible that one could be so planted in their character that they cannot be formed, uh, that they can uh, not change their disposition forever. Um, could, uh, one final point on this. This is called the hard-heartedness objection. 
And it's one thing for me to say that I am hard-hearted towards the state of Zach. That's how we often mean it when we say that Andrew mm-hmm. is hard-hearted. We mean Andrew is callous towards the state of Zach. But what C.S. Lewis and Richard Swinburne are proposing is that Andrew will not just – he's not just going to be this, uh, callous towards Zach. He's going to be callous towards his own state. Are we to imagine that Andrew is going to experience utter torment, no pleasure – it is utter torment. He will have no strong motive for choosing such torment. In fact, he will have every motive to the ulterior, to the opposite. And yet, Andrew will continue going on doing this. I mean, are we to imagine that Andrew won't be seeking to relieve that torment? He'll be looking for ways out. And if he knows that repentance and restoration with God is the only means out, are we to imagine that at no time he will seek to do that? Now, I use this example. Um, let's say given libertarian freedom, let's say that I have a box, okay? And in it is 50 pennies. And they're all facing heads up. Now, on the heads up, right, on the heads, I put sticky glue. So that once the penny flips over onto its head, it will stick. Now, what are the chances that after enough shakings, eventually they will all turn over and stick? It, it, I mean, you're a mathematical genius, I know. It's just about certain. It, it's, it's just about certain that given enough shakings over time, every single coin will flip over. Mm-hmm. And I believe yeah. the same is true of persons. I mean, there aren't infinite persons. There are a limited number of persons. And so given enough time, ev- uh, given libertarian freedom as well, eventually, like those pennies, all people will come to that point of restoration and repentance. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, that's great. So I'm wondering then, one thing I was wondering is, could someone run that argument in reverse and say in favor of like hell, heaven not being eternal? So say we're like, yeah. okay, Andrew, yeah. like I'm totally on board. Like we have free will. Um, eventually everyone's going to, you know, like maybe they want to change their mind. But then couldn't you say like everyone in heaven, you know, they're perfectly blissful. They're no, happy. that's ridiculous. But eventually like there'd be some chance yeah. they'd go back. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that's, an, that's uh, again, you know, it just shows how desperate the traditionalists are. I mean, do they have no concept whatsoever of grace? Now, Intuitively, we all know that this is a stupid argument because we understand that the difference between heaven and hell is that of grace uh, in the sense that I have it's not of my own uh, power that I have for myself such with God that I cannot abandon heaven. It is because of grace that over time, grace has empowered me to unite myself with the infinite God. God is the infinite good towards which we are all seeking. And he is the only good, therefore, which can fully satisfy us. And so grace is the ability by which God inclines us towards himself. Now, on the other hand, I have to ask, given Christian metaphysics, classical metaphysics, and that evil is a pervasio bona, it's a pervasion of the good, then what is the equivalent to grace on the side of evil? I mean, there's no evil demiurge who is empowering the people in hell to remain evil, is there? What is the source by which those in hell have to resist God forever? It is their own inclinations, themselves. And you have to therefore postulate that the damned have such strength of character <laughs> that they can hold out forever. And I just, I just don't believe that is the case, as I believe has been effectively demonstrated, I hope to show in my book, is that they are not of such strength of character. Uh, whereas those in heaven, the saints, have been empowered by grace and been united to that infinite good, those in hell, on the other hand, have no such power such as grace. They have to ultimately rely upon themselves and their own inclinations to resist God. 
So what is the difference between those leaving heaven and those leaving hell? Well, it's a question of grace, ultimately, it comes down to it, and, and how grace transforms our characters uh, characters, and aligns our characters with God. Mm. Okay, yeah, that's great. That's super helpful. So we've been talking about this a lot, but let's kind of like um, just like further cement this. So like what are some of like the theological reasons, Andrew, that push you to, towards like a version of universalism that you, that you hold to now? Well, the first would be that the Bible teaches it. I mean, right. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, I'll just be, I'll just put my cards on the table. It wasn't because of some sentimental afternoon. I was sitting down at the cemetery and I thought, my goodness, 90% of these people are probably burning in hell. Uh, that wasn't how I came to this conclusion. I was reading Romans 5 without having John MacArthur whispering in my ear or anybody else. I was just reading it and I followed the logic through. And I have marked in my Bible, actually, I could probably show it. I still have marked in there a question I asked myself after reading it. I wondered if I understood Paul's logic. Well, you probably can't see it because of all the notes, but um, (laughs) those are some of my notes on Romans 5. It's a rich chapter. And I asked, does Paul mean that all men will be justified? That just seemed to be the pure and simple logic of his argument. Then it was amazing. As soon as I asked that question, I started recalling other passages. Passages that um, I call uh, Bible verses banned by Bible-believing Christians. Passages like Colossians 1, 16 through 20, which says that God, uh, Christ created all things, and then he reconciles all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. Passages like Ephesians 1, 9 through 10, which says that um, Christ has been set forth to unite all things in himself. Passages like 1 Corinthians 15, 28, which said that God will be all in all. Passages like Luke 16, 16, that says that everyone is being forced into the kingdom. Uh, stories like the prodigal son that I had always heard, where uh, and of my, one of my favorites, the parable of the lost sheep. And that's, that was a very powerful parable when I was reflecting on this because I thought to myself, when does the shepherd, the good shepherd, and what makes him good, when does he stop looking for the sheep? Well, if you know the story, he doesn't. Not until he has found it. And then he brings it back and there is rejoicing in heaven. Mm-hmm. And it is the same with the sons where the father goes out from the party and sits with the son. And I find this to be an apt analogy of universal of my view is that you can sit and pout outside the party all you want. But whenever you're ready, you're able to enter the party. And for anybody who's worked with children, I mean, <laughs> uh, you would just know this experientially that there's often times where everybody's having just a grand old time. And there's that one child who's just absolutely miserable, right? And what do we do? Well, we take that child aside and we try to encourage the child to uh, change their dispositions, to join in the fun. But if they won't, what do we do? Well, we go back to the other children. But we tell them, whenever you're ready, you could come and join us. Hmm. And that's the same thing that we see in these parables. And I think that's the same thing that we see in all these passages. Is That's what God is saying to us. He will, he will never leave us is always open for us to come and join the party. But you have to first clean your robes, as Revelation says. Nothing unclean will enter the city. You must first be cleansed before you do so. Hmm. That's great, Andrew. And I really appreciate what you're doing because for me, like, um, 
you're telling a really good story. And I'm not saying that in like a like a mean way of oh, it's just high and you're just saying fiction. I'm saying this in a way of like like it makes sense to me. And I like for me like there's things you're going to talk about in a minute that really like hold me away from like a story like this that you're talking about um, scripturally. But like it makes a lot of sense. Like intuitively, like it makes sense to think of the idea of like um, like God's a perfect being. Um, if someone doesn't want to like yeah. so like so to be like be in the party, like it makes sense. He's like okay, well wait 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 until the time of that you're ready and come and join the party. Um, it fits with the 91 and the ones you go going away. It's like, there is a lot of sense of what, what you're saying, I think. So, yeah. Can, can I add something? I mean, in all honesty, a Calvinist has absolutely no reason to not acknowledge the truth of universalism. Uh, I mean, it, it's plainly obvious, according to Calvinism, is that God chooses those who will be saved, right? And mm -hmm. um, he accomplishes this by means of grace. Now, what might hinder him from choosing all persons? Well, some like John Piper have set forth the idea of justice. Now, this is ridiculous because justice does not need to be expressed merely in repaying wrongs. Um, justice can also be uh, be exemplified by repaying goods, right? But but maybe John Piper wants to take this a step further. Maybe say that well, perhaps it's not just that God wants to display um, justice; He wants to display retributive justice, right? In the idea of uh, God wants to show his justice in the face of sin. I mean, Paul does present this argument in Romans 3. He says that um, human sin does display divine righteousness. Now, I, I would counter Piper's intuition, though, on this matter, because according to Piper, if one holds the penal substitutionary atonement theory, then Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. He has satisfied the justice of God. He has done so. So that to say that God requires a second demonstration. It seems superfluous. It actually seems to take away from the sufferings of Christ. It, it, it does. It seems to take away from his own sufferings and say, well, you know, that was a grand old illustration of God's justice, wasn't it? But hey, we got a second one over here. <laughs> no, it's ridiculous. Uh, if one is a Calvinist and holds to the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, it becomes very hard. Furthermore, John Piper says in his works that God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Piper goes mm -hmm. on to say that, therefore, my satisfaction is not opposed to his glorification. Mm. Well, if this is so, if God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him, then according to Calvinism, what is the logic, therefore? What would God do? Mm. He would make sure that all would be satisfied in him because that would most glorify him. And so I find it extremely, extremely difficult on Calvinism then to explain why universalism would not be essentially the summing up of the core doctrines of Calvinism. Mm, yeah, that's super good. Um, let's talk about like the philosophical reasons. Like you talked about, like obviously, like like we're, we're both like Bible believing Christians here. Like I'm sure like you'd be willing, like the Bible pushed you to like to accept eternal conscious torment. I'm sure you'd accept it, Andrew. And like I feel the same way. Um, but like, so we talk about the theological reasons. And what, what are, like, the ph philosophical reasons maybe you're, like, outside the Bible that, like, push you towards, like, a version of, like, universalism? I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> uh, <laughs> In five there, minutes, there, give it to me? I don't know. Many. So, uh, I think the chief one that comes to most people's mind is the problem of evil. Now, Marilyn McCord Adams and others have formulated the problem of evil in terms of the problem of hell which is a very powerful one. I, I love Marilyn McCord Adams' book. Um, I can't recall. Maybe it was um, Horrendous God Evils and the Goodness God of God. God and Horrendous Suffering, yeah. Yeah, Horrendous Evils and, and the Goodness of God. Excellent book, I should say. Now, Adams says that God, and I believe she is right, 
that order for God to be good, he must not just be good on the whole. He must be good to all person, individual persons. Now, uh, this is, of course, arguing against consequentialism, which is indeed condemned in the Bible and the Christian religion. I mean, Paul explicitly says that, shall we go on to sin so that grace may abound? And what does he say? By no means. I mean, uh, consequentialism is outright condemned. Uh, now, the question is whether or not God loves all persons. I mean, it's to Marilyn McCord's argument. This is very important, whether or not God loves everybody. And um, I would go to 1 John 4, 8 and 16, which says God is love. Now, it's amazing. In John Calvin's Institutes, it's about 1,500 pages. I have it somewhere in here. He never once quotes this verse. He has over 50 pages in small text in three columns of an index of scripture citations. Never once cites it. Now, Lewis Burkhoff in his systematic theology and other calculus never once cites 1 John 4, 8 or 16, God is love. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, it asked the question, what is God? Now, if anybody asked me that question, I would immediately think of 1 John 4, 8 and 16, God is love. But it never says that. It says God is infinite spirit, blah, 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 blah. Now, this should just go to show that Calvinism has a hard time of explaining the love of God towards all persons. Um, D.A. Carson, for example, titles his book, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Well, I don't think it's a difficult doctrine. I think that the doctrines of Calvinism make it difficult. Now, Calvinists will usually uh, attempt two strategies. The first is to say that God hates certain persons, that he hates them. Now, I think that this is being honest. I mean, I think this is the only way that Calvinism can be um, consistent, that God must hate certain individuals um, at some point in time. Because I have to ask, if God reprobates individuals, I mean, once they're in hell, does he still love them? And I, I don't understand it. They say, well, yes, he loves them. Okay, so, so what is he doing to demonstrate his love towards them? Oh, well, he's inflicting wrath upon them. Oh, fantastic. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, the other view is to show that God loves all persons in some ways, but some persons in all ways, right? And they'll say, well, God has this certain love towards the elect, but he has a different love towards the non-elect. Now, this is just vile, diabolical nonsense. I mean, uh, essentially, they're arguing from common grace that says, well, God allows the sun to shine on the wicked and the righteous alike. And this is an act of his just amazing grace and love toward these people. I mean, Paul outright condemns this. Jesus asked the question, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? I mean, the conclusion is Im just implicit in the presences. It doesn't. It doesn't profit the man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul. So I have to ask the question. If God was to give an individual the whole world and yet withhold from him his soul, would that be an act of love? Uh, St. Paul says that the sufferings of this time are not worth comparing with what awaits us, right? He goes on to say that it, it's, it's all rubbish compared to what awaits us in eternity. It's rubbish. So God shows his love by giving us rubbish. Um, and, and then I like to use this analogy. Well, let's say that... Because essentially what the Calvinist is saying that God shows us love towards the non-elect through material possessions, right? Well, in that case, the Nazis, I mean, they had great dental services for the Jews, and they gave them, you know, dinner now and again. I mean, uh, the Nazi guards, I mean, even allowed the Jewish children to play outside now and again. I mean, this should be an excellent demonstration of the love of God, should it not? But uh, the analogy I often use is that, imagine I have a camp, and at my camp, um, the children come down with some fatal terminal illness. 
And I managed to procure uh, a means of healing all of them. I have enough to heal them all uh, through a vaccine. But I only give it to some, right? And the others die. And then you're a parent of one of those children. You come to me and say, why didn't you give my child that vaccine? And I say, well, Zach, you have to understand. I love your child. <laughs> I spent long nights sitting at your child's side, talking to your child, whispering you know, words of encouragement in the ear. Mm-hmm. You would think that I was a lunatic. Right? Mm-hmm. You think that there was something wrong with me. In the same sense, I have to say that there is something wrong with the Calvinist who attempts to argue that God can love an individual in this sense. Uh, I know the Calvinists will try to say, well, God, God's love may be like that of a husband who loves his wife in one way, but loves um, other women and others. That's just ridiculous. If we are to believe that God reprobated these individuals, that he damned them to hell forever, it's more akin to saying that God, that, that, that a husband loves his wife differently than the women that he rapes. But I would go further. Reprobation is the ultimate evil. It is far worse than rape ever could be. And so to say, make such a, an analogy is just diabolical nonsense. And so I don't believe that Calvinism can adequately answer uh, for how God loves all persons. Now there's the question of whether God does love all persons. At the first um, supposition by Arthur Pink said, Arthur Pink in his book, The Sovereignty of God, page 113, I believe, says that when we say that God is sovereign in the exercise of his love, we mean that God chooses whom he shall love. God does not love everyone. Now, intuitively to most Christians, this is just satanic. But one cannot merely just wave it with a wave of their hand. They have to prove it from Scripture. And so that's why I brought up 1 John 4, 8 and 16. It doesn't say that God is merely loving. It says that God is love. It treats love as an essential attribute of God. And there are two other affirmations similar to this in 1 John. It says God is light and God is spirit. And so I have to ask the question, is God spirit to some? No, he isn't. Is God light to some? Who would argue that? And if God, if, if we see that these sentences are formulated, these propositions, in the exact same way, God is light, God is love, God is spirit. Why would we assume that God is love is different than the other two and should be taken a different way? Another point I'd like to make, that this is not just an argument against the Calvinists on love, is that there is the paradox of exclusivism, as Thomas Talbot calls it. And that we are commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And yet we're commanded also to love our neighbor as ourself. Now, it's hard to imagine that I could love my neighbor as myself by either ignoring his plight or rejoicing in his torments. It seems that the two are in contradiction. And so I don't believe on the traditional uh, list view or the annihilationist view that you can make sense of this paradox where God says you are to love this individual as yourself. In fact, he goes further than this in Matthew chapter 25, and he says that whatever you did for the least of these people in need, you did for me, right? And I think that's very important is that we often forget that Christ calls us to love individuals as ourself. But St. Paul didn't. In Romans chapter 9, I believe it's verse 3, he says about how he would be anathema if it meant the salvation of his fellow brethren. 
And so I reminded of the words of George MacDonald, who says that who, upon seeing his neighbor just languishing in the torments of hell, would not feel that he must arise, that he must not go forth, that he must not take the road through the smoke and through the flames and abandon the golden harps and wings to be with his brother. I tell you, Zach, that such an individual has the mind of Christ and the heart of the Father. And I think it's important to ultimately bring all this in mind when we're posing this topic is how do each of these views show forth the love of God? How do they show how we can love our neighbor as ourselves? That This is a big theological issue that needs to be addressed. And again, I don't think that Calvinism um, can account for it unless it's is summed up in universalism. So those are some theological points. Others, um, justice, I mean, I have a 60-page chapter on justice and how, um, depending of one holds to divine simplicity, uh, which I know you're not a fan of, but if one is <laughs> adherent to divine simplicity, universalism is, is the only outcome. It's the only yeah. way of showing how love and justice can ultimately be seen as one. And this is, again, what we seem to see in Romans 11, where God has consigned all to disobedience so that he may have mercy on all. So uh, again, those are just some brief points. Well, thank you for that, Andrew. I think that's super great. Um, what I'd love to do now and with the rest of this interview is talk about like some objections to universalism. Yes. So first, let's look at a couple of scriptural like things. And then I want to get to maybe like one or two just like common questions that I see if uh, someone's like arguing against universalism. It's like, these are common points. So first thing is one of the things I want to wonder is like, I always like one of my big issues with universalism is thinking about the idea of a second death. Um, so I'll read from like Revelation 21 for yep. a little bit here. So I'll start at verse five and read through verse eight, um, just to give a little context. It's about the new heaven and the new earth. And he who was sitting on the throne said, behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So the big thing that like gets me stuck is the idea of a second death. So it's like like for me, like if you think about like a bodily sense, like my death on this earth is like permanent. Like when I die, I die. Like my earthly life is over and I go to face the Lord. Um, so it seems like in Revelation here, they're talking about like a second death, which to me, like, and I, I don't know Greek, I haven't studied Revelation in depth, but I think for a lot of people, um, Christians that would be listening to this, we get stuck on this like I do. And it's like, well, if there's a second death, like it seems like that seems like it'd be permanent, right? Because death is death. Um, so what's your take on this passage, Andrew? Yeah, I, I <laughs> obviously I don't find it convincing. Uh, <laughs> yeah. To the point because, uh, again, in Hebrews, we see that it's appointed to man once to die and then comes judgment. Mm -hmm. Now, this is in direct contradiction, this interpretation with that passage. And I've even interviewed conditionalists on this, and they have proposed red herrings. But what about this passage? It only goes to show there seems to be an apparent contradiction between their view and that passage in Hebrews. Now, second death. Well, what, what does second death mean? Well, I think, again, uh, Revelation is full of apocalyptic imagery that one doesn't often understand unless they have read the Old Testament. Uh, the Lake of Fire, in particular, is a reference to the Dead Sea. Uh, near the Dead Sea was where Solomon and Gomorrah were just overwhelmed with fire. And we have references to the destruction of Solomon and Gomorrah and how it influenced the ancient minds in Strabo and Josephus and Philo Alexandria and many, many, many works. And I, I talk about this in my book as well. 
um, and that this was an act of judgment. We see it time and time again repeated in the Old Testament. This idea of the fire and brimstone shall consume you if you shall depart from God's law, right? So it's thoroughly imprinted on people's mind. This was a judgment that was very real to these people, that of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it was typified in um, this passage in particular. Uh, what I find interesting is that I believe it's in Ezekiel. It says that streams of water shall come forth from the temple and shall go forth into the Dead Sea. And living things shall come forth from it. <laughs> uh, it, it. That living things shall come forth from the sea, the Dead Sea, which was seen to be the uh, typological, uh, the, the typological image of the judgment of God. I find that quite extraordinary. Now, um, why would it be called second death? Well, I should think this is kind of obvious to any preterist. Uh, we see in Ezekiel 37 that the condition of the nation of Israel is described as a bunch of corpses. Right, and the prophet Ezekiel is told to uh, to speak to them so that they may live. And the breath of God enters into them, and they stand to their feet. Right, and God tells the Israelites, "This is what I shall do to you. I shall bring you out, right, and back to the land." So Israel has suf suffered a national death. Their state, uh, the diaspora, is put in terms of death. So what is the second death? Well, it's, if you're following the logic, it's the second death of the Jewish nation, which most scholars seem to be in agreement is what the book of revelation is addressing is the book of revelation has in mind those events in the first century and not our near and distant future and so um i, I talk about this in many 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 pages in my book but that is the view that i hold that is a view i see more scholars leaning towards in these days the second death is um in view of the destruction of the nation of israel and um, you can see kind of metaphors of death typifying uh, national judgment and separation in the Old Testament. So that's how I would, I would approach that passage in Revelation. Okay, that's good. Thanks, Andrew. I mean, it's interesting. So you'd say the second death, then that's not even talking about like heaven and hell. That's talking about like the death no. of Israel. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I yeah, mean, no, it's interesting. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting. I haven't thought about it that way. I mean, in one hand, I'm like, I'm reading, like, I think of the verses before and I get this clear image of like, um, like God in heaven and like, like heaven and hell, you know, I mean, that's probably my background knowledge. But if you look like in Revelation, like right after 21, it talks about the new Jerusalem. Um, yeah, again, interesting. The, so, yeah. yeah so, so the new Jerusalem, I mean, there is ridiculous idea uh, for some that, well, the new Jerusalem is heaven, although the passage explicitly states that it comes out of heaven. And the new Jerusalem is obviously the church. Uh, it's called the bride of the lamb. Well, unless, the lamb has more than one bride. I mean, less uh, Christ is a polygamist. Uh, there's only one bride that I know of. And most scholars are in agreement here that these passages are not talking about the distant future. But that, again, the idea is that the whore, the whore who represents the Jewish nation, they've been sent away, right? The Jewish people. They've been, that's what the, the seals are, by the way, those seven seals. Um, Jesus talks about how when one is divorced, they're given a certificate of divorce. Well, this is the divorce certificate that's being talked about. And the Jewish nation, they killed Christ. And Christ tells them in the Gospel of Matthew that all the blood of righteous Abel to um, the prophet Zechariah will come upon this generation, this people. And so all these images in Revelation, they're very hard to decipher, I will say that, but they are pointing toward this first century reality, including the last chapters. Now, someone might object to this and say, are you saying that there is no return of Christ? Yes. Did, did, did you hear me say that? No, I did not. I mean, Paul explicitly states that Christ will return again. We can find other passages outside of the book of Revelation that speak to a second coming and a resurrection. Mm. 
Okay, so what I'd like to do, Andrew, is look at one more verse um, that might be used in Sword of Hell, because I think it's another one that just helps people like flesh this out. So we talked about Matthew 25 a little bit already, but I want to just do this again because um, I think it's really helpful. So I'm going to read Matthew 25, 41 through 46, and then let's get your take on it, and we'll have a good time. So it says, starting in verse 41, I'm reading the ESV. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you curse it into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister you? Then he said to them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Um, so, you know, like in verse 45 and verses 41, it talks about this idea of an eternal fire and eternal punishment, um, and, you know, like eternal is forever. So it's hard for me. And I know we talked about this, like, like how do you make sense of this in a universalist paragraph? Because a lot of people are saying if it's eternal life or eternal punishment, that seems like forever. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I noticed early on in my studies is that translators are deceptive. Now, it's not on just this issue. I mean, one that I remember when I was just reading the scripture uh, one time was that it seemed to be difficult to discern whether or not Paul was talking about our spirit, the human spirit, or the Holy Spirit. And sure enough, when I started getting to scholarship, I started realizing that trans, uh, translators aren't so much translating as they are interpreting in many cases. Mm-hmm. I mean, the NIV is just gibberish. I mean, the NIV seems to pretend that evangelicalism is actually biblical Christianity, but we don't have to get into that here. Um, so what do we do with this word ionios? that is used to describe the sort of punishment. It's hard to find any scholar these days who will argue that the word is uh, connoting eternal. N.T. Wright, for example, is a traditionalist, although he, he tells me he's a semi-annihilationist, who says that what this word is describing, Ionion, is that which pertains to the age to come. In fact, the it's an adjective. The word Ionion is an adjective. It just modifies and describes a noun. And this is very important, uh, in, which we'll get into later. But the noun is ion, and ion means age, right? Um, so I have certain scripture passages in which the word ion and ionion are used. I'll give you um, another one, Romans 16, 25 through 26. Paul talks about the mystery. That was kept secret in the immortal ages, the eternal ages. <laughs> now, those ages weren't eternal, <laughs> And so Paul seems to think that a mystery uh, that was kept uh, for many ages can come to an end. And so if that's true, I don't have a hard time understanding how punishment for ages cannot also come to an end. But let's look at some other passages of the scripture. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 28, uh, 20, I'm with you always, even to the end of what? Well, your translation probably says the age. But if we weren't to interpret it as many people want to Matthew 25, 46, we'd have to say to the end of the eternity. Now, how does that make sense? How can you get to the end of eternity? So it's the same Another, word in that end of the age is the eternal. It's the okay. noun form. Yes. No, over okay. and over and over again. Now, we also have to remember that Jesus was not speaking Greek, was he? Jesus was speaking probably Aramaic. And Aramaic, uh, we'd have the word olam which is used in the Old Testament, right? And again, it doesn't connote eternality. I mean, it says Jonah was in the fish. Olam. Was Jonah in the fish forever? He was in there for three days, <laughs> right? He was not in the belly of the fish forever. So most of scholarship, I could go on with other passages, but most of scholarship is in agreement. Then when it comes to Matthew 25, 46, I mean, it was Augustine 
who set forth the idea, well, if the life, if the punishment is not everlasting, then neither can life be. That is such a ridiculous argument. First of all, Augustine was, <laughs> it's very well known that Augustine struggled with Greek. He, he, he did not do very well in Greek studies and not very much like Greek studies for a variety of reasons. He was reading the Latin in this passage. And the Latin doesn't translate it properly or as properly as we should. Uh, and so this argument has been set forth many, many times, but it's just not convincing. If we were to understand, as most people today, that what it's saying is that this is the punishment of the age to come, and this is the life of the age to come, then it doesn't automatically mean that both are the same duration. For example, tomorrow I shall have breakfast, and tomorrow I shall go to work. Both things occur tomorrow. Does that automatically mean they're the same duration? <laughs> it simply does not. Just because they both, uh, both activities occur tomorrow does not mean they will be of the same duration. And just because the punishment and the, um, the life occur in the age to come does not mean they'll be the same duration. Furthermore, here's another point that I find quite interesting. Many universalists in the literature had absolutely no problem using the word Ionios in Matthew 25, 46, even though they were universalists. That should make you stop and think. If they have no problem using that word and holding to universalism, why is that the case? Well, it's kind of obvious to most scholars today uh, because uh, in the past, translators weren't translating, they were interpreting. But now we know better. And so that's uh, more or less. Now, some people might be, here's a concern, exactly I know might come up as well. If the punishment, again, if the punishment isn't forever, is the life forever. We'd have to go to other texts. Uh, Paul makes it very clear that there will be a resurrection, that we will be raised immortal and incorruptible, that death will die. From that alone, it's very clear that we just won't die again, will we? Right. And so other passages would confirm the idea that the life is forever. But we'd have to ask the question, do other passages confirm that the punishment will be forever? And again, as I said, the word that's used there for punishment is often used for pruning. It's often used for remedial punishment. I think it was uh, Plato or Aristotle, one of uh, them coined the term, actually, and used it of remedial punishment. Now, people could try to argue that the Bible was concocted in a vacuum, but it simply wasn't. It had it, The writers of Scripture obviously uh, knew very much about their surrounding culture, especially the authors of the Old Testament. And so it's a ridiculous notion that, that, that these were people sitting in scriptorium right? And they were reading Augustine, Aquinas, Polycopos. Like the Post. No, they weren't. These were people very much aware of the works of Homer and of other Greek literature at the time, especially Plato. Aristotle. I mean, we, for crying out loud, in Acts 17, Paul starts quoting the Greek poets. He was very familiar with their work. And so we have to keep that in mind, because here's the problem, Zach, um, that I see nowadays is most Christians have an education and uh, if they tell you it's Koine Greek, then they haven't really learned Greek. It's Kine Greek. Not Koine Greek. That should be a dead giveaway. They're being trained in seminary Greek, but not classical Greek. And as I said, the, the scripture just simply wasn't written in a vacuum. It was written in a Hellenized culture. And so if you really want to understand biblical Greek, you have to read classical works as well. And that's where I think traditionalists and annihilationists have often been lacking in this regard. And are just thoroughly unconvincing. So if we go like to like Greek literature that's written in Greek at the time, this word then it's not necessarily like being used to like be eternal. Then is that is yes, that what you're I'll, trying to I'll make? give you an example. So 
Um, Josephus, Philo of Alexandria are two such individuals that immediately come to mind. Josephus says that John the Baptist, right, that he was in prison and, and, mm-hmm. and that he was tormented there uh, forever. <laughs> no, it wasn't forever. It was only like a few years, maybe. And so mm-hmm. we, we see this in Josephus. We see, and, and here's the other thing that I find quite interesting. If Jesus had wanted to say that the punishment was endless, that it was everlasting, there were abundant, he could have used idios. There are abundant other words, autovelitas. There are other words that he could have used that would have been clear. In fact, uh, uh, here's an argument from God's omniscience. If he knew that there would be such debate over what this term means, it's conceivable that he would have used a more clear term, wouldn't he? Right? Uh, mm-hmm. But he didn't. Uh, he used a term that predominantly does not have the connotation that traditionalists and annihilationists put to it. And so in Greek literature, uh, I think you will find it all over, but Homer and Josephus and Philo of Alexandria are figures that come immediately a lot to mind. In fact, um, a good work on this is David Bentley Hart's uh, translation of the New Testament. And in the back, he actually gives some examples of where you can find this in Greek culture and Homer and Attic are some of those examples. So I would just encourage people to go and look at this for themselves. Okay. Well, that's awesome, man. Um, one more objection I'd like to get to, and then we can start to close up shop here. Um, a very common just like question with universalism is like, what is even the point of this life then? I personally um, don't find this super convincing anymore or convincing at all anymore, but it is a very important question because I think it helps like understand like, a couple of questions about like, what is the purpose of our life here? Um, what is the purpose of Jesus? Things like that. So I wanted to bring this up. So a lot of people would say like, Hey, if everyone's saved, like, why can't I just like go do what I want right now? Like, why can't I just go keep sinning and just do what I want to do? Um, Cause like, I'm going to get saved eventually. So what's the point of like trying to avoid all this hell stuff? Um, so what do you think, Andrew? Like, what's the point of this life then in response to like that kind of objection to universal? So there's actually many questions in there. Uh, one I often get is, well, why be a Christian? Right. <laughs> and if you ask the question, my assumption is that you're probably not. I mean, if mm-hmm. you're not a Christian for the reason that you that God is the good and you find him so beautiful and it is reward enough just to know him, just to know him, then I believe you have a flawed perception of Christ. I mean, I take the Moravians, for example, who were, for the most part, universalist, and yet they went on missions. They sold themselves at times into slavery to reach slaves who you just couldn't normally reach. And they shouted from the ships, may Christ um, have his reward. May the lamb have his reward. And I I find that quite beautiful. And now uh, more to the point, um, people, when they ask about universalism, they often ask, you know, why not just sin here now, right? Um, And I like to ask them, well, would you rather be healed by ointment or amputation? Right, I mean, uh, hell is extreme. I'm not saying it's not. In fact, I, I think it's more extreme than many traditionalists like uh, Jerry uh, Walls and C.S. Lewis. I think it's far worse than they imagine. And to think that well, it's better to be healed by amputation than ointment is just simply absurd. I mean, um, so also as well, we know. Uh, I don't want to go that around now. The problem of evil, right? That's something that um, seemed implicit in your question. Uh, many people have actually noted that universalism doesn't aggravate the problem of evil. It actually helps to solve the problem of evil quite well. So I don't find Michael Murray, Three Ways of Universalism, where he uh, and 
other articles where he tries to say that universalism aggravates the problem of evil to be that convincing, as you have already indicated. But what does this life is this pointless? Right, is the question on universalism. Well, no, because uh, perhaps it's pointless if God wanted to create robots. All right, if He wanted to create automatons, then yes, this life is pointless. But no, God wanted to create persons. He wanted to create persons, and persons uh, are temporal creatures, and persons require a um, a past history in non-being and a future in the plenitude of God. They cannot be characters who are simply summed into existence, summoned into existence with a script already prepared for them. Then God has not created a person. He's created a puppet. But God creates persons. Uh, uh, other things, I mean, one could bring in John Hicks' soul, the Odyssey, for example. Um, mm. But I think perhaps some goods uh, might be the atonement, the incarnation especially. Uh, without this life, who knows if God would have been incarnate himself. And that's a good that's that I believe is worth more than all the universes one can think of combined. And so this idea that universalism doesn't make sense of um, why this life is necessary, I, I just don't find convincing for any number of reasons. Again, this is a section that I set forth in my book, though. So once my book uh, releases, I hope that people would examine the argument in its totality. Yeah, I think that's good. And like for me, like I, I think about it like, like if Christianity is true, like there's a perfect being that loves us, like whatever he wants of us, like that's better than anything else. And like the whole, like, as you were talking about, like the whole mission of Christianity is, it isn't about like escaping your hell or getting into heaven, but it's like living and following and serving a perfect being. Um, it's like, why would I, like, why, as like Lewis kind of points out, like, why would I want to stick my feet in the mud and stick my head in the mud and like keep doing stupid stuff um, when the light of God is better for me and it's giving me real joy. And it doesn't mean I'm going to stop, like, like I mess up a lot, but like for me, like that's the fight there is like, that's why it's worth it is because like following God is better than anything else um, that can be given. Can, can I, can I add, can I add something? Um, so yeah, in second Corinthians five, uh, Paul, it's it, second Corinthians five is an amazing chapter, by the way. Uh, Paul says that why he is being shipwrecked, why he is enduring these beatings, why is he, he is going through all this is because of the love of God. His motive for mm -hmm. missions is the love of God. And so I often tell mm -hmm. traditionalists, if the love of God is not a sufficient motivation for missions, then in the best interest of missions, please stay home. Right? Paul, <laughs> this is a, Paul never mentions the word hell, by the way. Never once mentions it. Now, this doesn't mean that the concept is present, which I think it is. But here's the curious thing. Uh, Jesus, people will often say that Jesus talked more about hell than anybody. And that's meant to scare you. But here's the reality. That wouldn't be that hard to do since nobody ever seems to talk about it. Jesus would only need to mention it twice. He's already talked about it or three times more than anybody else in the whole Bible. The Hebrew Bible simply has no concept of it whatsoever. I mean, it would have been nice for God to tell Adam, hey, Adam, the day that you eat of this fruit, you shall shortly be tormented forever. I mean, <laughs> never comes up. Uh, and the Old Testament, there are so many laws that are given. But Moses never tells them, oh, guys, it slipped my mind. By the way, uh, <laughs> If you live mm -hmm. apart from God, you will be tormented forever. Never comes up in the whole Yeah, Lewis in Reflection in the Psalms says the same thing, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then well, what about the New Testament? Well, Jesus talks about a place called Gehenna, does he not? Now, the question is, well, what does Gehenna typify? What, what is it uh, trying to teach? Uh, Bruce Metzger, and uh, I think it's his name is Papanoia, uh, go in, in the geography of hell go into a deep study of the roots of Gehenna. And there are two different traditions. There's a prophetic tradition of Gehenna, and then there's the rabbinical tradition of Gehenna, right? Now, the prophetic one is seen in prophets such as Jeremiah, 
who Jeremiah is told by God to tell the people that Gehenna, where child sacrifices have been performed, will become the valley of slaughter. Right, that God is sending the nations against Israel, and they will slaughter them and cast their corpses into Gehenna. Now, the rabbinical one, on the other hand, is this idea of some sort of punishment, whether it's terminal punishment or whether it's everlasting punishment. There are different interpretations of that in the rabbinical literature. But here's the interesting thing: it seems that every single reference to Gehenna as post-mortem uh, fate in the rabbinical literature comes after Christ. It is not before him, so that could influence his thoughts. It comes after him. Now, which is more likely, that Christ's view of Gehenna is aligned with the prophetic tradition, which comes before him, or the rabbinical tradition, which comes after him? Furthermore, I, um, it, my book was getting too long, so I cut this portion out of Gehenna. But Christ, if one compares um, his ministry to that of Jeremiah, you will see so many parallels. For example... Uh, Jeremiah performs a prophetic act in the temple. He smashes a jar in the temple to show that destruction is coming upon the people in the temple. Well, if you're like me, you immediately recall when Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns tables, right? To signify the apostasy of the Jewish nation. Uh, over and over and over and over and over again, we see parallels between Jesus and Jeremiah. And so the question is, if we see all these parallels, I wonder if Jesus had Jeremiah's view of Gehenna in mind. And I believe, quite frankly, that that is the only clear option. And not the only one. I mean, most scholars today, regardless of their view, hold this, except for the annihilationists. Many traditionalists, uh, such as N.T. Wright in particular, in his uh, fantastic book, The Victory of God, holds the idea that essentially what Christ is teaching is that if you do not repent, you will be destroyed by the Romans' armies, and you'll have your carcasses chucked into the Valley of Gehenna, to the Valley mm. of Slaughter. And um, I believe that N.T. Wright is absolutely right. I don't mean for that to be a pun. But um, one of the ways that you can establish this is by the question, does Jesus or the New Testament authors ever threaten a Gentile with Gehenna? And the answer is no. They never once threaten a Gentile with Gehenna. Never once. And so when Jesus is threatening the Jewish people with Gehenna, right, he is calling them to repentance, which they did not do. And the Jewish, uh, the Jewish nation perished under the siege led by the Roman general Titus. Now, one final point to make um, is the book of Acts. If you want to know uh, how to evangelize the people, you'd expect that you could find... Um, such a plausible manner in the early church, would you not? I mean, I, I would think that the apostle uh, Paul and that the other apostles would be the best exemplification of missions, not just Billy Graham. Now, what do we find in Acts? Well, I think Acts has about 17 sermons, and never once, never once in any of those sermons, does Paul or the apostles use this idea of postmortem punishment as a means of motivation? Never once do they do that. Not a single time. And so I get quite uncomfortable when pastors on a stage do the exact opposite and mention how more times in a single sermon than the entire Bible does from cover to cover. The Bible uh, does not, I mean, the, the idea of hell is just 
almost absolutely vacant from the scriptures. Now, I'm not trying to minimize it, but I'm trying to say that often what we do, Zach, is we put so much emphasis in our world today on postmodern realities, and we don't often focus on the present. But oftentimes, these were circumstantial letters that Paul was writing. He was focused on things that were happening in his day, at the present time. And the same was true of Christ, that he was focusing on the present. Like one passage that I want to say, and then um, I'll keep my peace, is uh, the narrow way. So Jesus talks about the narrow way. This is a question that often comes up to me, right? Is, uh, well, the way is narrow, and, and few find it, right? And uh, Jesus talks about the narrow uh, way that leads to life and the broad way that leads to destruction, and few are on that narrow way. So obviously, I'm wrong. Well, no, I mean, you only have to examine the context. In the context, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus gives this, this verse is found directly after the golden rule. Now, the golden rule, Jesus says to do unto others what you would have them do to you. All right? He gives a statement. Do unto others what you have them do to you. Then he goes on to explain it, to expound it. The following verses are Jesus expounding on the principle he has just set forth. Jesus is saying, you know, few people treat others as they do themselves. Few people do it. It's hard to do it. But if you do it, you will have a fulfilled life now. <laughs> On the other hand, if you don't, right, you're only ruining your life. How true is that? How beautiful is that? So this idea that, well, the narrow way is for uh, to lead someone to the sinner's prayer, right? And the golden rule is for children learning to play with one another is just not there in the text. Mm. Well, Andrew, this has been great, man. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Um, and there's, there's a lot for me to chew on and think about as we keep going here. Um, but to wrap up, Andrew, is there any like last thoughts or things you want to get off your chest before we close up shop for the day? Uh, sure. I guess uh, one final point that I would have is that we have to remember at the end of the day, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. Even Augustine, who was very adamant about the idea of eternal conscious torment, described universalist as tender-hearted brethren. Now, one can mm, say that he's being yeah. sarcastic, but at the same time, he called them brethren. They were brothers. Again, the creeds did not condemn this. And so I, I don't like it when Mark Driscoll, for example, says that he can get along with the annihilationists because well, that seems like a, um, he, he described it as a state issue, right? It's like a state boundary. But he described yeah. universalism as a national boundary. I entirely disagree. Augustine did not see that uh, see it that way. The creeds did not see it that way. The fathers did not see that uh, that way. Now, I also want to say from my perspective that often I've seen individuals just lambast those who hold to views of traditionalism, annihilation, say that they're wicked, diabolical people, and I don't believe that's true. I mean, uh, I believe that many people who hold to the traditionalist view have been taught it from birth. Right? They've grown up in it. They don't know any better. I mean, people don't have the time like you and I to go and research these things in depth. They just simply don't. So I don't expect it of them. Um, and so I believe that people of my persuasion should have grace to those people. It's not because they're wicked in most cases that they believe this. It's because they think the Bible teaches it. At the end of the day, I would rather have someone stick to what they believe the Bible teaches right, mm. than to abandon that view because then you're in danger. And so um, those are just some of my final concerns. At the end of the day, we should remember we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. This is an in-home discussion, and uh, we should keep it at that. Awesome, man. Well, Andrew, how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that? 
Mm -hmm. So um, easiest way is to go to my Instagram. Uh, it is A-M-H-R-O-N-I-C-H. Um, that's where I will be posting updates um, to my book and the interviews that I conduct as well. Um, I'm also working on a channel of my own uh, with a friend. So hopefully uh, we can get that out in the coming months. And um, I would really encourage people to uh, be anticipatory of my forthcoming book, Once Loved, Always Loved, The Logic of Apocatastasis. And um, so, yeah, those are some ways of staying in touch. Yeah, awesome. And I'll be sure to share out that book. Just make sure you send it to me, um, the link to me when it comes out. And I'll be sure to share it out for people that listen to this and are interested by your work. But that's it for today. I'm, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been great. A lot to think about. So I encourage people um, to follow Andrew, check out his work. Um, lots of great stuff over there. And yeah, I think that's it for today. Um, thank you everyone for listening. I always encourage you if you if you're a fan of the show and what's going on here, um, give us a follow on, the, on all the social medias. Um, give us a subscribe right here on YouTube, a like, all that helps a lot. And if you really value our content, you can become a patron. Um, little as a dollar a month at patreon.com. So you can apologize. You get all kinds of cool little perks along with that. So you can do it for literally pennies a day. Um, and your support helps a lot. And it's, it's great. But yeah, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me. Man. This has been super great. I really, really enjoyed this. And Look forward to seeing where your work go, goes and best of luck as you head to Princeton Theological Seminary, man. Thank you. It was a delightful discussion. All right. Have a good one, everyone. God bless. We'll catch you next.